Welcome to the Great Big Yes podcast. My name is Sue Bidstrup, and I am excited that you're here today. I can't wait to share this one with you. Um, Greg Hoyt is the husband of a friend of mine, Amy Hoyt, and they live in Wisconsin. Greg has an interesting story. Just There's so much to it, and so I'm thrilled that he was willing to come here and share his story. He moved to the United States in 1986 when he was 14 from Guyana, South America. He moved to Brooklyn. And to say it was culture shock is putting it mildly. He went through a lot of changes and some really tough times. Um, But this is a story of God and how he never leaves us. This is a beautiful and a tough story. Um, It is, I know you're going to love it. So listen in. I'm going to let it speak for itself. And here's Greg. Okay, well, I am super excited today to be speaking with Greg Hoyt. He is married to a good friend of mine, Amy, and um, she has introduced me to her husband, and he has is willing to tell his beautiful story here about his life and um, just about how God has met him on his journey. And so I just want to welcome Greg. How are you, Greg? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I am doing awesome. Awesome. Um, so can you just kind of... Um, I'm going to let you do a lot of talking here. I would love for you to tell your story. Where are you from? I was born in Guyana, South America. Awesome. And when did you come to America, the United States? In 1986. All right. So how old were you in 1986? I was, I think, uh, 14. Okay. Awesome. We're about the same age then. Um, Okay, so you came to America, and then where did you live when you moved here? I lived in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York. Okay, so did your whole family come here? Did your whole family move to Brooklyn? Yeah, my my mom and dad was here about nine years before we come. Okay, so Um, they were already here. They were already here, and then they sent for us, and then all of us came came to Brooklyn, and then we left there, yeah. I love that part of the story. So they were already here, and um, you you weren't here yet for nine years. Who were you living with? Yeah, we were were in Guyana, and uh, when my mom left, she left Guyana. She left Guyana, and we were with our father. And she left there to come to the United States. Cause, and if, if you live in Guyana, probably for everyone back in those days, um, like the ultimate goal, the biggest goal that could ever happen, if you, even, if you believe in Christ, you would thought of them. The greatest thing could happen to you is for you to be able to get to the United States. Because in Guyana, the United States was everything like if you make it to the United States, you have made it wow. in, in that sense. So yeah. my mom, you know, for us, when we were really little, we would hear my mother talking about coming to the United States. But then when you look and see how poor we were and those, that was, that was never like a reality. Right. Um, so, so when you your know, mom came here, did she come here and start working and then they had to like get enough money to, to bring you over? Was that the situation? Yes, because to get a, a visa from Guyana to come here at that time was very expensive. So, And we were talking about my mom and my dad with four kids. So 
with just my dad alone working home, they couldn't do that together. So the decision was made that they will save enough money, get a visa for her to come to the United States. And then that's what she did. And then she would work and save money up and then try and get enough money to sponsor all of us now so we can come over here. Uh, So that was the plan. And she came here. And after about two years, she was here. Then my dad left. Guyana, and then he came to the United States. So now both of them was in the United States, and we were with our. We lived for about two and a half. We we kind of moved around a lot. First, we lived with our grandfather, I think, for about three years. Then we moved and lived with our grandmother for three years or so. Then we moved and lived with our uncle um, for like three or four years, and and then ending of that, then my mom came back. But that was around like nine or ten years after she left, and then she came back. And at that time, they were able to save up enough money to be able to get all of us to the United States. And that, that it was around 1986, so, and then we all came in 1986. Okay, I have so many questions. What jobs did your mom and dad have when they came to America? My dad was a bus driver. And my mom did, she did a live-in care. She worked, she took care of um, the elderly. Okay. But so she, one of the ways that it helped her to save a lot of money, she just lived at the person's house that she was taking care of. And she was there seven days a week. So then she didn't have to pay a rent or those type of stuff. She took the job where she would live at their house and she raised uh, and you were raised a person, um, kids and daughters wake up, cook, clean house, do everything. So she did that. She's always did that since from then until she just retired a couple of years ago. That's what she had done all her life coming here. And then my dad drive, he was a bus driver. And then later on, he got into construction. Okay. Awesome. So interesting. So when they said, we're going to bring you now to the United States, you were... I'm assuming really excited. Yes, or- we we were very excited, but it still was not um, believable. Let me give you a background of yeah. what Guyana is and what we've known, and then what you can expect. Like, yeah, until I was four, until I was fourteen, when my mom came back, she came in 1980. She came back home in 1987. When she came back there. Until then, from two all the way to 14, me, neither my brothers or my sister, like we never owned a pair of shoes. So everything was just, you're just walking around barefoot. No one, we've never owned a TV. There was no electricity inside of there. It's, there was none of that stuff. And one of the things that was very, very expensive in our village um, was ice. I I love telling this story. It's ice. (laughs) Uh, but so we had one person in the village that had electricity, and if you had electricity back then, it means you were very rich, because then you can any weddings or anything that's going on and those type of stuff, people are coming and buy ice and stuff from you. Yeah. So we would go, and there was a movie theater in our village, and we would get to go to the movies like you know once a month or so, and it was a dollar to go. So we would go to the movies. And we would see these movies, and we loved movies with Chuck Norris and Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> I would see these movies, 
and we would see snow. But back then, we thought snow wasn't real because what it showed, it shows ice falling from the sky, land on the ground, it builds up, and then people just walk all over it and they don't use it. And and it's kind of, and then they show you big stuff coming, just dig it up and throw it away. And when we're like, there's no way someone will do that when they can be so rich selling this stuff. <laughs> oh, I love so, that. So we never, until we got here in 1987, November 7, and we came out of the airport and it was snowing, we did not believe that snow exists because uh. it couldn't be that in one place, you, it was so hard to get. And then in the next place, it was just falling out the sky. Could you oh. imagine people would tell you that? Oh, it was, yeah, it just fall out of the sky and it blows <laughs> up and they just throw it away. So we never really believed that piece until we got here. So that was just, and we came out and we was looking straight up in the air. My mom was like, we got to get into the car. We got to get into the car. And we were like <laughs> opening up our mouths. And it, it was the, oh my goodness. It was, it was a I great love- experience, but it was just, mind-boggling it oh my goodness and then you know I you get love into that oh my gosh what yeah. a great story to illustrate we only know what we've seen right we only believe yeah. what we've seen yeah oh yeah. my gosh yeah that's amazing yeah. um yeah. okay so yeah you're coming from poverty and no shoes basically to america where there's not only snow but i'm sure you were seeing lots of things for the first time Oh, one of the, when we were home, food was like, food was the biggest stuff. I sit back and there's certain things simply because of how I've grown up. I've changed uh, for my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember daily being hungry. And I, I remember the things that we would do, go and do. They, we would, because you're so hungry, we would go and steal coconuts. Yeah. And you crack it open and you drink the water and eat jelly inside we go and get fruits we you'll be very very creative in getting stuff to eat you um that was something was just constant but it wasn't something that you're not see like you see your parents work it's it's not like someone sitting around and not doing anything my dad is out working consistently my mom is home cleaning cooking doing whatever we have a garden and those type of stuff right but just because of how the country is in itself, it is just tough and hard. No matter what you do, you're still hungry most of the days. Right. You, you are hungry. So, mm. again, it was one of those things that when we go and we looked at movies and those type of things, you would see in the movies. And it, it, it wasn't huge, but you'll see a movie and someone is part of the movie might be where someone is going into the fridge to get um to get a beer or something and when they open up the fridge it's full with food and you see cheese and milk and all of these different things and again someone who have never seen a fridge this we're like yeah you know that did this because of this movie Uh like no one has that amount of food in their house all the time yeah like this was just this was something that was just not real and those types so everyone we see things like that and then there were shows, there were certain shows that you would see home where they would waste so much food. And yeah. again, we would be like, yeah, this is not real. The food is not real. Um, no place will do that. And, and 
And plus, America won't do that because in Guyana, America was the best in everything. If you, the, the people that looks the best, the people that treats you the best, the people that speaks the best, the people that most kindness, everything that you can think of in any category, anyone that what you call America, Americans, they were the best. That's how America was felt to Guyana. Yeah. If you want to get here, once you get here and you become an American, you are like on the top of that. You can't get any higher. Mm. So just trying your best to get here or getting here was just the biggest thing possible. But to get back to the food, when we get here, our parents knew what was how shocked we we're going to be. Yeah. So when we get here, they have this huge, our first apartment, they had this huge big fridge where like two doors and you can open up both doors yeah. and look inside. And we were so, we've never seen so much food. We've eaten, and my mom and dad, they just decided to let us be for about six to eight months. Yeah. Because we, we first, we eat so much food, uh, we got sick, but then we couldn't drop the mentality of if you have a little now, you may not have it later. So you got to put away, yeah. you never eat everything all right away. Yeah. So we would be taking food and put it under a bed or put it under a mattress and just hiding food all over and creating a mess in the house. Mm-hmm. But for the first couple of months, they would tell us, don't do that. The food is going to be here. But after growing up for 14 years, believing different or seeing different, your brain, your mindset don't let you believe that right away, even if it's coming from your parents. Yeah. So we struggle a bit with overeating. We struggle a lot with knowing that the food would be there. And, uh, you know, it, in the first couple of months, I, I remember, you know, it, it, it becomes difficult where it, it brings a lot of argument and stuff. And then I remember, clearly remember my parents just sitting us down and just telling us, look, you know what, it is going to be here, but I'll we're going to let you guys see that it's going to be here. So they stopped, like, telling, he was like, look, what are we going to do every, at the end of every Saturday? We're going to just go around the house and clean and everything up. Yeah. And I want you guys to look and see that you'll see Sunday, we'll go to the grocery store and we'll buy more again and we'll put it in the fridge. So we had to see this process happens a couple of times, maybe a dozen or so times. Right. Before we kind of start putting away some of our beliefs and stuff and, and kind of get normalized in those things. And those, you know, for, it was huge. Even when we go out, I think um, it was embarrassing when we go out too. But again, it was things that we, we just did not know. I remember our first trip that took us to Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah. And it was these like um, huge, big, you know, like the 20 pieces and those type of stuff. So they bought like two or three of those. And we were just going down on them. And again, <laughs> home, you don't waste anything. Yeah. So we would eat all the meat and then we start biting the bones and we chewing up the bones and we suck in the marrow. Yeah. And people around us was, look, it was just about for us, there was nothing wrong, nothing wrong with it. That was yeah. things like that. My mom had to, you know, they had to work with us and be like, you know. But again, none of those things were able to drop easily to this day i still i don't see i don't i don't do it anymore but i i never seen anything wrong with it i it's just 
it's just what it was. This is yeah. what it was coming from something to that. But it's, it's things like that, that, um, you know, kind of make, not made like difficult, but made life just different. Um, some simple things that I think people have here that it was just so difficult for us to transition to transition from uh, yeah. the food. But I think one of the, one of the biggest things that messed with us for years and years uh, when we first came here was was behavior. Mm-hmm. Because if you're, when I lived in, we lived in, in the country, when I lived in the country and we were there for three or four years in Guyana, I've never seen a police officer. There was never a reason for a police officer. Never. I've never seen one hmm. there. Yeah. The closest hospital was about four hours away. No one in our house have ever went to the hospital everything you need to do is a bush you boil or a leaf or something and you treat every single thing so there was never a hospital yeah so in every so behavior wise when you go to school you if a teacher asks a question say mr hoyt what they don't you know say greg what is four and four you have to stand up you gotta say the teacher name miss jones four and four is da 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 you get it. Yeah. So that's the respect. You always have to stand up. You have to see their name and you mm-hmm. tell them and give the answer. Then you sit back down. And then if you're walking the streets, you could never swear or curse. Let's, I'm going to give a scenario. Let's say I'm living in Wisconsin mm-hmm. and I travel and I go to Brooklyn if I was living in Guyana. And I swear in Brooklyn, any adult that sees and hear that is allowed to pick a whoop and whoop me because oh. they hear me swear. And then they will put a note in your pocket and say, give this to your parents. And then you go home and you give it to your parents and they read it and they heard that you were disrespectful. Because how they looked at it is if I swear in front of a next adult, I am disrespectful to that adult. Right. So then my parents would give me a second whoop and be like, what? Yeah. I didn't raise you to be disrespectful. Mm. So oh respect and respecting adult and those types of things was huge. But when we came here to the States, and we started going to first just walking home in Guyana. Every adult you pass, you have to say good morning or good evening. Mm. So that was our biggest problem when we got here. Yeah. You're in so New York talking people. to people. Right. <laughs> You're in New York City. There's thousands and thousands of people. And we're walking by. And every adult you see, you feel like you have to say hello or she's going to get a whooping. Or it's disrespectful not to say hello. Yeah. And we would say hello, and people would look at you like you're strange, and yeah. they would be like, what? What is wrong with you? So <laughs> that got us a lot of problematic stuff on the streets. We had to figure that out really quick because people would be like, what's wrong with you? Are you an idiot? And they would be very mean back to you while you just try. But again, these are people that you just don't know. You don't know anywhere. and. People walk there with their head down and those type of stuff, and and you're just thinking, oh my goodness, this this yep, this person is older than me. This is an adult. I have to say good morning, good morning, sir, good morning, right. ma'am. So you walk in the street, you probably say good morning, sir or ma'am, a hundred times within a couple of blocks. Right. But you get not so good responding that stuff. And then when we went to school. School was the hardest because we would get laughed at in school when the teacher would call on you and you, 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 first you have to stand up, you said the teacher name, and then you say that stuff and everything sounds so respectful. 
But the kids in the class, they would say, oh, there goes the next foreigner. Right. And then they start making fun of you because there's more people from Guyana in Brooklyn. Like there's a lot of people from Guyana and Jamaica and stuff and kind of have the similar background bringing up of respect. It was so huge. So you stand out clearly by just how you respect people on things that you do and things that you didn't do. Right. Um, so a big part of that within the first year or so, we had to abandon a lot of the stuff that growing up in Ghana that we thought the parents thought was right. You had to kind of abandon it or um, not use it. You, you just didn't walk the street no more. You didn't say hello or hi or those type of stuff. You didn't show that level of respect to teachers and those type of stuff in school. Like you just had to change a lot of stuff that what we consider home that was great quality Yes. It's such a shame. It's such a shame that you had to like, feel like you had to abandon respecting your elders. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a shame really. I mean, because you were doing the right thing. Um, it's interesting just even within America, we moved from Chicago to Texas and my son was in sixth grade and he was not calling the teacher sir or ma'am the coaches and he had to like they had to have a little talking with him that he needs they need to be addressed as sir and ma'am and I was really kind of (laughs) glad you know I felt like he was learning how to respect elders and now my kids do that naturally but they weren't raised to do that so even within the United States it could be different in different regions as well but um, I love the idea that you were taught to respect and say hello. It's so kind to to address people on the street too. And I feel like we all just kind of look the look down at the ground, or you know, don't want to connect. And that's um, sad. But oh, I love that story though. That's so interesting. So tell me about Brooklyn. What happened there? How did that go for you? Um, Brooklyn was Brooklyn was I and I. As I look back and I see all the things that I'm doing now, mm-hmm. I I understand why I had to go through that. I see um, I see what God was doing and those type of things. But I I will still say I would not want <laughs> to do that again. Yeah. I don't wish it on no one. The process there was just hard and difficult, and the biggest part there was the violence up to this day, although I, I've gotten through it, I still don't have a concept of how people can be so violent. Yeah. For it seems like there was no rational reason at all. Um, it was, you know, we, and we didn't know much just coming there. We didn't know much at all. Anything about the culture shock, the culture was just, so, so different. I think we were like some of the most peaceful people to come from Ghana with all the respect and all of this stuff. And when you come into the culture with Brooklyn, um, the, the, just in the school, like one of the, the things, some of the things that stand out is you will get robbed. Well, before we even get into the school, in Guyana, you just walk through the school door. When we go the first two, first day we went to Brooklyn and the school we went to, was Prospect Heights High School. Uh-huh. To give you a backdrop on that school, it was the worst school in the United States, and they ended up closing it down. Okay. But we didn't know that. My parents didn't know that. But 
But the first day we walked in, to get into the school, they were about, you know, like when you go going through like the train styles, you have to go, go through oh, and yeah. pay your tokens. Yeah. They, that's how you had to go through because those were metal detectors. Wow. We did not, we've never seen a metal detector, never known about this. So then you go through there, it scan you. And obviously if you have on a buckle or something like that, then something will go off. Then you have to go over to someplace else and then they scan you down again and then you empty out your bag and those types of stuff and then you go to school. So that yeah. was just huge. We did not know what, what that was all about. But then when you get into the school and one of the things we learned really, really quick is that you shouldn't wear nice stuff. But again, my parents who came here, although they were here for nine years, they were not in the the street culture, they really did not know what was going on in the schools because they were set on, you know, I came here to work. My mom was working about a half an hour away and she was just working and saving money, not getting caught up in what's going on on the streets or those things. So when we come, one of the things they would want to do is get you the new shoes and nice clothes and a nice jacket. And within the first five or six months, we will get robbed and beat up daily. Oh. And people would just take your, they would literally, if you ever see a movie and someone take your shoes off your feet, trust it happens. They take your shoes off, take your jacket away and those type of stuff. Oh. And they, people will just come and they raise up their shirt and they said, hey, take a look. When you look down there, it's a gun he have in his waist. In the school that have all these metal detectors, there's someone in the school with a gun and they will just say, Back in the days, they would say, hey, just run me a jacket or run me a shoes. And he's like, what does that mean? Yeah. And he's like, are you an idiot? Give me that. Give me that. And you give it to them, and they're gone. And then nine out of ten times, you'll go and you say something to the principal and them, and then they call someone from home. But you then no one is home, so then you got to walk and go home. What's the good thing for us is just a block and a half. And then you go home, and then... If you get new stuff, you put it on, but we never really come back because then you're terrified then. Right. But that stuff happened in school. It happens on the streets. It, but it happens very often. It happens so often. One of the things that was very, very scary, that we live in Brooklyn and in Crown Heights, and you will see and hear about a lot of shooting in the community. Mm-hmm. You never, ever see it on TV. Yeah. So... It builds up this fear. You're like, wow, what is going on? Because, again, back then we thought, eh, no matter what happens, the news will tell you this stuff. So then when you don't see the stuff on the news, you know, you don't know what to think. But yeah. the, level, the level of violence that was there was so overwhelming, but we, you couldn't touch it. Like, it's not saying there's a reason for violence, but... If, 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 you, if I'm walking with my kids here and someone came up and hit one of my kids, and then I hit them back and then a cop comes and then he will say, okay, here I have a reason for why this escalates. Someone hits your kids and then you get upset and you hit them back. Right. In Brooklyn, we couldn't, you couldn't put those two together. Things were just happening because people, I, up to this day, I still don't understand like, what was in these people's head. Why did not just us, but other people get treated? Like, how could you get to that level of violence without 
at least I saw it and still do to, without any reason or without, without someone provoking you too. Right. Uh, so that was the callousness that I've seen and had to grow up in. The bad part of that is uh, is, is four of us. And this to, I, and I, I said, I, you know, I, I think this, I, 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 I don't know. I, all I know that God helped me and get me out of stuff, but it, I made decisions that I thought back then was the right decisions to make and, 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 and God helped me. So like there were four of us. And I think there you at that time with the level of violence, with where we were living, there was only two choices to be made. One is that you just, we didn't have a choice to say we weren't going to school or those because we, in our house, 100% of the time, you listen to what your parents say. Yeah. You do what your parents tell you to do. This is, this is, there's no debate. There's no asking of questions. It's you do this. Yes, mom. You right. do that. Yes, dad. That is it. That's the, the, that's the farthest that it goes. Right. So when they say you go to school, we could come home and we will tell them everything that goes on at school. But the next day, you're going to school because they said education is a priority. That's it. Yeah. There's no if or buts around it. Right. So, you know, we would. Um, the, I just lost my talk. You were saying there were two options for what you right. could do. Yes. There was two options. One is that you decided that you were going to accept being harassed, beaten up, and getting your stuff taken from, or you decide different. Mm-hmm. And my sister and my older brother, I had two older brothers, and they both chose that path. They chose the path of being um, not aggressive. They chose the path of not fighting back. They chose the path of just... Um, uh, with, uh, you know, and, and this might sound bad, but back in those days, I thought it chose a pass of being weak. Yeah. So, but for me, I, I decided to do different because coming from Guyana, I loved, I liked to swim. Mm-hmm. And our school had a pool. And then once we start, once I start swimming, and then you're getting all this great food from here, it within a year or so, my body structure changed. I'm a big guy. Mm-hmm. I'm a strong guy. And now I'm in the school um, swimming class, and now I have access to a gym. So now I'm even stronger. Mm-hmm. So walking the streets or being in school and having someone take something from you when you know physically, if you just decide to say no, that they can't take it from you, so that was one thing. And then the next year. So, so I reached were a people, point where... Fit- sorry to interrupt, but were people kind of afraid of you then because you were like big, strong, tough guy or you looked that way? Like, were, were you able no, to use that? No, I was... That? I, I think it's after... I When I get big and, and strong and those things, I was still like one of the... Like a, a nice, quiet person. Mm-hmm. I yeah. had to... It's two things that had to happen. One, I had to get big and strong to give me the confidence. But two, the, ne- the biggest piece that I think which affect me the most is mentally I needed to change my, mentally I needed to be changed. Because mentally, yes, I was strong and I was swimming and 
mentally I was still the person that grew up in Guyana. Mentally yeah. I was still a nice person. I was still a very respectful person. I was still someone, I will just give you what I have. So that is what needed to be changed mentally. And yeah. After for a long while and going through this process and seeing certain things happen, and I remember it was my sister, and we were th- we were in Brooklyn. I think about because we lived in Brooklyn for thirteen years, and I think it was like three years into it, mm-hmm. uh, someone in the in our neighborhood that we knew raped my sister, yeah. and nothing came of it. There was. There was no cops. There was there was nothing. Nothing came of it, and yeah. that was for me. And I knew the person, and the person knew me. So it was. There were other stuff, but I think that just because she like shut kind of shut down for a long while. Yeah, and she wouldn't talk. And because I knew the person, we were kind of friend I knew the person she felt like she couldn't tell me oh. it was this weird thing but yeah. then it took me about six months from my final from her best friend mm. and that's what kind of just changed me mentally and from then on my my thing was you know what I am and a big part of it was just afraid of dying and, and I was like I'm, I'm number one I stopped being afraid. So that was the whole idea that I had just had one rule of, I am not going to be afraid no more. I'm not going to take anything from anyone, like no BS from no one. Yeah. And no one that I know can mess with my brother or sister. And, Mm -hmm. but when you decide that, like I said, I I got lost for a couple of years. Well, this, the, the mentality I had to go into is not that I would sit back and wait or is the guy in the street and this guy that's on the street corner and doing these things, I need to be worse than him because this person on the street needs to fear me now. Yeah. So that is the, that is the danger piece in here. That was the piece where I get lost for a lot of years. Yes. You get the, there was no one was messing with my brother. No one messed with my sister. I remember my brother was a senior in high school and he was having issue with this, with someone. And basically all he's like, Hey, Greg. And he just came and he told me what was happening. He's like, can you just walk with me one block? And that is all it took for me to just walk with him. So this person can see that we are friends and Mm -hmm. that was it. But it takes like anything you do, it takes hold of you. It is, it is, it, it was hard. I've never, there's, I've, no, there's no one, even in those days, there's no one will say, oh, Greg came and robbed me or Greg beat me up for a reason. Back in the days, they used to play like in Brooklyn, there was these like knockout games. Mm-hmm. You will have a bunch of kids that are just walking around and they will choose usually the biggest or strongest person. Mm-hmm. And one per- they'll see one person walking, but eight or nine kids will just walk up to you. And one person out of the group will try and hit you the hardest to just knock you out. But oh, then if you try and fight back, there's eight people to beat you up. Oh, it's terrible. So those were some of the stuff that just happens with simple, and it just has to do with because you look big or whatever the case is, makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. No sense. So those stuff happens to me, happened to me about twice. And so then how do you, even when I, when I 
thought of myself as big and strong and those type of things, those things still would happen because I would probably go to, you know, Pacific Street, which is about like 20 blocks away, and you walk and come, and people really don't know you that well 20 blocks away. So they will try different stuff. So if someone trying to do something like that and you're one person, then you get beat out. But if you're on the streets, how do you avoid that? You go 20 blocks away and four or five people try to rob you or beat you up. The way how you avoid that is always carrying a gun with you and those type of stuff. Mm -hmm. So then you start doing all of those type of things. So that's what I'm saying. It it start out. It, when I look at this stuff, it I'm so happy I get get to maneuver myself through it. But I couldn't understand like why this path. It 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 is so hard. It made me so angry for so long. And if I'm being real honest with you, I yeah. haven't left. I haven't got rid of all of it. It makes right. me very it makes me extremely racist yeah and i'm i'm oh my lord i am being so honest with you a lot of those Good. not a lot of those stuff but i still haven't abandoned everything because i i just i pray every day and i ask and and it it is it's something that consumes if you deal with that much anger and hatred and those things for so long it it overwhelms you. It takes up a lot of you. Right. And, you know, it is, uh, so I, up to this, this day, there's, there's still stuff that I, I consistently pray and I ask God to help me with. And, but I, 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 one day he will make it so clear to me to show me why. Cause, uh, I can see, I work with kids now. I yeah. work with Stokeman. I work with kids. And that is one of my biggest motivators is to try and scare kids from a lot of the stuff or I will see there trying to to duplicate some of the things that I see and I know where it leads to and those things. So that is my biggest, biggest motivation for what I do right now. I could be in the construction field making three times as what I'm doing. Right. But I I feel like mentoring kids is is what I was that was why I went through this stuff. Right. And yeah, it, that's they yeah. say, right? Like your misery becomes your ministry. Like unfortunately, we have to go through things in order to kind of understand and and it God can can create a life purpose out of it, but it is painful. I want to go back to the time when you were there and you mentioned guns. I'm just wondering like how did you did would you have to like cuz I picture on the streets you know, in order to, cause so there's these eight guys coming at you, those eight guys, are they like in a gang and then they're just yeah. doing that because they're all together all the time? Like, did you need people? Did you have to join a gang? Yes. What we did back then, we, because it was all about the people that we got all of our problems, people that I got all of my problems for was black african American mm-hmm. and so how it goes is they will have black african American gangs they will have Jamaican gangs they'll have gangs from Trinidad they'll have gangs from Grenada they'll have gangs from Guyana okay I've never had an issue with anyone from any of the Caribbean countries because we're all like so similar, yeah. Fighting and drugs and beating up people is not what we grew up with. We don't know this world. Right. So 9,900% of our stuff have to do 
with black Americans. Right. And so what we did, we, we form a gang and it was GT massive. So now everyone that was in, in this gang for us, it, we know it, it wasn't a thing of, Oh, here it's so, and I, I do, I used to go around and speak here in Wisconsin about gangs. And I, I was letting people know that, you know, not all, you shouldn't categorize gangs. Once you hear a gang, you shouldn't categorize it as something bad. A lot of times <clears throat> these stuff are not start out and doing stuff bad. The, the idea of how we started this stuff, hundred mm-hmm. percent was about helping each other and being protective of each other. Yeah. It ended up getting, and because of the environment that we were living in, it didn't make sense to say, okay, We'll start a gang, and this will be five people or ten people inside of it. But you know what? The gang across the street, those guys over here, although we in a gang over here, they can walk over any time and smack you around or beat you and take your stuff. What is the sense in starting a gang then? Right. When we started a gang, when we, and there was a lot of people that you had to decide whether or not you will be a part of the gang because it was like, okay, here's what we are going to do, and here's what we're not going to do. We weren't going to go out and be selling drugs and, and those types of stuff and go around beating or knocking out people or those types of stuff. But for everyone that said they're a part of this game, if we, if my, if I'm with just one person that's in my game, if I, if we walk and we used to go, love to go down like Flatbush and walk, if we go to Flatbush and we get into a, some trouble with anyone else, I cannot run away and leave that person or that person can't run away and leave. Me. If I am get a, if I have a problem, you have a problem. If someone comes to beat me up, you have to help me. Right. There is no way out of it, and that's how we protect each other. Right. And so that's what we would do. And but once we did that, I can't remember. We would go anywhere alone. The only time you, I would I remember going place alone is when I got a job and I would go to work. Outside yeah. of that, that you're hanging out, you're always hanging out in a group or you're always hanging out with someone else. And our idea is we never abandon, you never run away, no matter what it is. Even someone pull out a gun, you'd never run away and leave each other. Like, right. So that's what we did. And that's what, that's what brought us a uh, certain reputation. And then... So to cope, Someone, I mean, basically to survive, you yeah. needed to be a part of a gang. And it's not that the gang was set up to hurt people. It was just for protection at the beginning, probably, right? Like that's, yeah. Yeah. It, it, was, it was set up that way, but there was a guy, the guy that kind of, that runs it. He was here. He was in this country much, much longer than us. Yeah. And he was the one that was telling us and he was said, you know, remember if you're in a gang and you go on, he was like, he, he's like his in the beginning, he would tell us, he was like, people will test us. They will test you. Yeah. Um, figure out if this is what you want. And it happens because we will just be, and we will have a gang, but the things that we do, we love playing cards. We love playing dominoes and stuff. So yeah. that's what we will do on the weekends. We will be downstairs. We, li- we live in a six-story building, mm-hmm. and we would be downstairs, and we love playing. We'll have a lot of music, reggae music and stuff, and we play in cards and dominoes and those things downstairs because that's what we grow up on. That's what we know. Yeah. But then probably like a half a block down, 
right on the same block that I live, you have a next gang right there about 500 feet away, and they are your enemies, and they'll yeah. walk and pass down, uh-huh. and they will do something stupid like kick your table or do something like that, and then what do you do then? Right. Do you say, oh, that, or, or you start a fight? Once we were form a gang and those type of stuff, we wouldn't let none of that stuff go. Right. Like we wouldn't, if we're walking and going down the street, we wouldn't go around and, and hit someone's table or say something to someone or those type of stuff. But our, the idea in our head was if someone do something to us, we would never back down or we would never run. We would right. never. And we always, 100% of the time, trying to come out on top. Yeah. So it was just, it was that mindset. Later on, as things go later on as it goes, it, it, if you think about a gang and you think where people in gang, yeah. where does it go all the way to the end? It went all the way. Everything that someone ever do in gangs, we end up doing in a gang. How did but, you get like out said, of it? Like, how did you escape that life then? Well, I remember when I was, and here's the thing. When I was in Guyana, the one thing that was consistent, when, our, when our parents was home, when we moved a little bit with my grandparents, we moved with my grandfather, then we moved with my grandmother, then we moved with my uncle. In all four places that we moved, the one thing that was consistent is church. That was the happiest time in my life was yeah. church. Church yeah. home was like just like how the Bible talks about church home. Yeah. Like you, you get to know the whole village. People come out like church was the best. Like <laughs> you get to know it infused in you Sundays and Tuesdays. We go to church, but you want to go to church. Yeah. It was, it was a happy moment. It, it, it was so different. I've never experienced church that way since mm. from my young days. It, I don't know. It, it, so I say that to say it was God was always a part. Did you go to church in Brooklyn or no? No. When we came there, we've never. So once we get there from 14, all of that stopped. Never went to church again. And but what I would do, I think one and I I think because I can look back now, I know God protects me because I would always call on him. I remember growing up. And singing John three sixteen for God and all these songs that yeah. talks about how God is always with you and He's always going to protect you. And in anything, anything you hear over and over and over and over and over again, you believe it. The Bible says faith is by hearing. So I heard a lot of that. Yeah. So I had faith that Christ exists. So I would call on Him a lot of times. Yeah. My problem is I never took the time to see how He got me out of stuff. Yeah. But I would be calling on him a lot, a lot. And because of my age now, I can able to look back and see that he always helped me. He's always been there. He never left. He's been always helping me. I was just so zoned in. I think, um, I think it's 1997, a couple of months before the summer. Yeah. Um, about, no. Let's say, I think it was 19, 
It's like four years before that. Because things were so bad Mm -hmm. that my mom just kicked me out. Yeah. Um, There were people, we were living in in Carroll Street, and uh, uh, someone came at the door, and he came at the door, and he asked, do Greg live here? And she said, yes. And he pulled out a gun, and he he was looking for me to tell me. Wow. But I wasn't there. He came in and looked at the checked the whole house and finally he just told her he was like when I come back I'm gonna come back here and I'll tell you something in front of you oh my and then gosh. I came home today and when I came home I was we live on six stories and I came and the garbage like back in Brooklyn you just bring your garbage out and put it like right yeah. on the street yeah <laughs> still when I came <laughs> yeah every piece of clothes that I have was in the garbage oh wow that's how I got kicked out my mom threw everything out when I came, when I came there, I had keys. She was like, I need your keys. And I gave her the keys, and she was like, I know you know no more. And that was it. Oh, That's no. the only thing she said. I went to the garbage, grabbed a bunch of my stuff, put it in some garbage bags. And then I was living on the street for four years. On the streets? You had no home? Yeah. No home. I, I, would, I live at different places. And then I, I, I have a friend, two friends from Grenada. And they were living in a, in a semi-abandoned building. But because of the rules of New York City, if you live in a building, the building had no landlords. There was about 30 people living in it. Um, this New York City, the, one of the rules are they cannot cut off the heat and they can't cut off electricity. Mm. But nothing else. So that was so we, they were living in a building. So I get to go in there with them. So then I left, we lived in there for about two and a half years. Oh my gosh. Were you and working at the time or going to school or anything? Or was this after high school? No, I, I never graduated high school. Okay. So I'll, this is like before I even get into 11th grade. Okay. Um, I was, I didn't, I didn't hit 11th grade. Okay. So I was out of there. We were just living. Like I tell my wife and I said, it, it, it just, in one stage I was home in Guyana starving didn't have much to eat came to the United States for a bunch of years had ton to eat got lost and then I was back on the street where good days was us just going and get a dollar and buying noodles and then you get the next dollar and you buy spaghetti sauce and we go home and boil the two and eat and we would do that three four times in a week because we don't have much money. We don't have money. And we will go and gamble. You play dice and you gamble and you make $5 and three of us in the house will eat. And, and, and those are how stuff happens. Yeah. But I, I, in, in all of this, though, so things was, as when I get put out, I think it was like rock bottom. Mm-hmm. But even my mom, they didn't know, they didn't understand yeah. Like how we get lost this way. And, they, you know, a lot of them, everyone in my family thought I deliberately just choose to be bad and choose. So there was a lot of shunning. Like no one, they're like, nope, he came to the United States and he adopted this mentality of black Americans and this, and it was not the case. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't say it wasn't the case, but I could say, I don't know what I'll say. It, it's, it was it was it was different that you the place made me or not made me I did it but I'm just saying I, I did know not what you're just saying. wake I feel up like... or start out saying 
I'm going to go do this wrong and I'm going to go do that wrong. Like that was never in my mind, not once. No. And I feel like that's what I wanted to ask you. Like when you were on the streets, I mean, how was your heart? Because clearly you're a very kind person who was raised, um, you know, to respect people and to love the Lord and all of these good things. And yeah, you got lost, you got off track, but yet you're still that same person. So, you know, I believe sometimes our outward self is acting one way and our inward self is still, you know, I still see the the child in there, um, you know, that went to church and loved it and all of that. So how was your heart in this time when you're living on the streets? Like, what were you thinking and feeling? And I think I know that is the piece that saved me is because I know of Christ. And yeah. I, at the ending of the day, I would look at myself and no matter what happened, I would just look at it. If I started something with someone wrongfully, I was wrong. If I didn't, if I, we get into a fight with someone and someone get beat up really bad, but this person is trying to rob us, yeah. I wasn't wrong. And for me, going through, that was how I would judge every single thing. Yeah. It's, I would know for myself, and I was like, you know what? Whether I'm wrong or I'm right. And I always look to Christ. I, I've never would say, um, forgive me, but I always want to ask God to help me. And yeah. Christ was consistent. He was so consistent, but no one knew it. When you, when people say you have to have a relationship with God, like that's what I would daily, I would go and say, Lord, help me out of this or show me how to get through this or whatever it is. The only, the difference is I, whether I believe it or whether I pay attention to it, those are the things I w- wasn't doing. So yeah. I would ask for stuff. And I will get around it or get through it or those types of stuff. I didn't have the knowledge or whatever else it takes to go back and say, thank you, Lord, or just recognize that he did this for me. But I will get through stuff. So I consistently do that. Yeah. But in, 1990, in 1997, it was just over. It was overwhelming. There was about three, three different people there. Three different people were looking to kill me. And I figured, you know what? I, and every, just, just, just about to say, every aspect of life was tough. I couldn't try and go home. I couldn't go to my parents and actually help. I couldn't go to my brother and actually help. I couldn't go to my sister because I thought she was mad with me because the guy that raped her was a friend of mine. Like I had no avenue to go to anyone. Yeah. But cause I knew I grew up and I know a lot about the Bible. I got a gun and I talked to my friend. He's still my best friend today. And we talked about two weeks about committing suicide. And I was like, you know, I said, this is the only way out. I said, I can't live like this. Mm. I know I'm going to die within, I thought in 1996, I wasn't going to live past that summer. Yeah. So I was, I felt I want to take my life. I did not want to get shoot down in the streets. I, that was like a, a fear of mine. Yeah. So he, he got a Bible and we will go through this Bible and I keep saying, I was like, you know, look at all these different places that God talks about forgiveness. But he keep telling me, and we were just looking at the Ten Commandments at that, that time. Yeah. And he was like, you know, God says, thou shall not kill. He was like, even if you take your life, buddy, you're going to hell. Yeah. That's the only reason. The only reason that I did not kill myself is because I thought if I did, 
I would go to hell. That is it. There's nothing that there was no, I had no, there was no relationship. There's no mom. There's no dad. There was no friend. There was nothing else. The only reason why I didn't kill myself is because of what the times that my parents in the past send me and go to church and I learn and I hear thou shalt not kill. And how I interpret that is that if you kill someone, you're going to go to hell. You kill yourself, you're going to go to hell. That's what, that, that right. is what put the fear in me. And I didn't. Oh. And I didn't kill myself. But there was a friend, I, a friend that I knew went to a summer camp. And just by accident, I ran into him. And he was like, Craig, what are you doing this summer? And I'm thinking, I don't know. And he was like, listen, I have this opportunity. We work, they work with, with kids, like special need kids and kid behavioral kids. And is, is about two hours away from New York City. And he said, they're short of minority males. He was like, is this something you might want to do? And right away, all I heard is like, oh, my goodness, you can leave New York City yes. for the whole summer. That's life right there. Yes. So I, was like, I said, tell me where. Within like two days, I was able to fill out the application. We send it. They were looking for African-American male. I fit that part. The guy called me on the phone and he talked and he said, can you be here the whole summer? And I said, yes, and asked where I was from. And then he was like, okay, I'll call you back within a day. He called me back and he told me that I got a job. Oh. And then as soon as I got the job, and I was, I was so happy. But then it took about, I had to wait now three weeks because the job started when school closed for the summer. Yeah. Because they're thinking, oh, this guy in school. So the job starts. So I had a, so basically I was, I just cooped up in our apartment for three weeks because I was just afraid coming out. Yeah. So I cooped up in the house for three weeks. And then when I left, I left, we jumped on the train and we left and get to Rhinebeck, New York. And that was 1997 summer camp. And we got up there and God did magical, crazy things there with me too. Yeah. In my first three weeks that helped me to find the person that I was when I was, when I was much younger. He showed me, and I, you know, I had to, I was there to help a lot of kids, but I got help from just stuff. Cause I, I remember when I'm going, when I went there, like I know who I was from the street. Yeah. So I'm thinking in my mind, everyone there knows this stuff. I'm thinking someone can just look right through you and see what you've done and those types of stuff. And I had a bunk of uh, eight kids, 18 boys, and would be there. But these guys were, they were just, the things that we were doing, we were fishing, we went boating, we would yeah. do the ropes course, we would play basketball. And basically, you're mentoring and showing these kids how to go through all of these stuff throughout the day without getting into fights or violence and those types of stuff. So it's yeah. a really fun day. Yeah. It's really fun. And you just go into And when they get frustrated and those things, you pull them off to the side and you talk with them and those types of stuff. And so I will do stuff like that with them. And the first, I was there for three weeks. But I was just so happy. And yeah. I would do... I went above and beyond, and they just thought at the camp, they thought, wow, this guy is so awesome. This time they're not knowing yeah. that. They, the, the relief and the peace that I had, there was nothing 
that the camp, if anyone was asked, Bernie or Mike at Ramapo camp, yeah. the first two years, there was nothing that anyone asked me to do that I didn't do or yeah. couldn't do. They, they, the camp was uh, 280 acres. They had about 20-something bathrooms. One of the things that was very tough for other people to do, we have a lot of artistic kids there. Mm-hmm. And they were very smart in certain areas and couldn't do certain things. Right. So they would go to the bathroom and poop up themselves, but put their hands in the poop and write, just put it all over the bathroom and don't oh the stuff. That was like daily yeah. stuff. But then now you have to clean that bathroom. Right. I had no issue doing that. It seems like I thrive in doing this stuff. I had no issue cleaning the butts of 15 and 16 year old. Like none of this stuff shrugged me. I had no qualms at all to do anything. Anything. All my thing was, I want to be there. I want to stay there. I want to feel the safety of being there. And so I would just do, I do. And I was, you know, you you lean back on how we grew up in Guyana. When you grew up, everyone was working. You sweep, you clean, you always, there wasn't no thing as chores back home. You just do stuff. So you wash dishes, you sew, you do everything you do. So I knew about all this stuff, knew how to do a lot of this stuff really good. So I would shine at places like that when I go and someone else, I've not even done it or just think this stuff is so disgusting. I was like, oh, no worries. I got it. Right. And I, I, would, I would just do it. But the piece that stands out a lot for me that really hit my heart in my first three weeks, there was a kid, Adrian Wilson, and he was there and we just bonded really nice. And, we, and at the end of the day, you can ask, like, if you could spend time with a special counselor, yeah. which is someone you were bonding with. And then you get an hour, and then you can go and hang out to this counselor. You guys can talk about anything. You can play ball or whatever. So after about like a week and a half, he would request me every night. Oh. Then we'll just go and hang out for an hour. And we, sometimes we just sit down and talk. He loved to roller skate. I love to roller skate. So we would yeah. roller skating. We'll play basketball. We'll go sit down by the pool and stuff. And we just hang out. And then three weeks came, and he left. And when he left, probably like, Seven or eight days later, I got a letter from him. And inside of the letter, he, the guy, he was like at least 15. And inside of this, we only spent three weeks together. And then his letter started off and he said how much he had a great time with me and those types of stuff. And you know, the end of the letter, he was like, the thing that I wish most is that like you were my dad. Oh. And I was blown away. Yeah. And I was like, what, like, what did I do? I was like, all I did was just spend time with him. You know, right. <laughs> yeah. And it truly showed, and that showed me, and I was like, yeah, Greg, you know, this is, and that helped me to see, this is who you want to be. This is the stuff you want to do. Right. This is how you want to impact people. Yeah. And, and these type of ways. And so I grabbed hold of that one thing that he said there, I grab all of that. I grab all of this kind of a work. And then I set my mind, that is what I'm going to do, that I am going to help kids. But the way oh, I help kids is by spending time with them, listening to them, talking yeah. with them. At some point, guiding a lot of the time, you don't need to be 
guiding sometimes. And most of the things that I see is sitting and listening yes. and letting them know you have an ear, letting them know that you love them and those type of things. So that was really huge and big for me. That's amazing. That made me yes. kind of stay in this field. Well, and I want to talk about what you're doing now, but I just want to circle back. Did you ever go back to New York City or did you stay gone at that point? No, my first summer, when my first summer finished, um, I had to go back to New York City. Okay. And that was that was the hardest part because I experienced a summer, a peaceful summer. Yeah. And I knew going back, would have been different. So I went back and for about a week and then I had a, my brother had a really good friend that lived in Canada. Mm-hmm. So then I talked to him and I asked if I could come and stay there for a little bit. So then I left and I went to Canada and I stayed there for a little bit. Then I couldn't find jobs and then there. And then one of my aunt lived in Maryland and then I left and went and stayed with her for about a year no, I, it wasn't even a year because I just stayed with her until close to back to the next summer. Okay. And then as soon as the next summer finished, I went back to the camp. Okay. And and I went then... back to the camp the following summer. Uh-huh. And then I, I let them know that if they ever started a year-round stuff and those type of stuff, I will want to be part of it and do it. And that same year, myself and two more staff, we started a year-round program. So the awesome. second year that I went back, I get hired for the year-round staff. I never really had to worry about going back to Brooklyn to work or live or do any of that stuff. So then I was able to stay away and little by little by little by little able to work on, you know, creating or finding the true person that God wanted me to be. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And that's the kind of work you're still doing, right? What are you doing now? Right now, I run a, an after-school program. We have about 45 to 50 kids that come in. Awesome. And provide snacks and stuff for them. But our main, my main piece in everything that I teach the kids are rules in the whole building is respect self, respect each other, and respect the space. There isn't anything that they can do that doesn't fall under there. There's yeah. no bullying. There's anything. But in all of it, what I, because I work for the city, I can't tell them about love right. or Christ. So I use respect in that sense. But I yeah. tell them, how do you respect yourself? How do you respect someone else? How do you respect this space? How do, and it, it is it's working awesome. I don't believe in programs. Like someone would say, um, you know, here are we are going to go and do these um how do we program or do this make about program or we'll do this program and that's what changed kids. I don't believe in that. We have stuff inside of there. Yeah. But I don't believe that's what changed people. I would agree. I deal with change in the heart. That's Amen. what change people. Yes. So that's how everything that I do and program is about. So it has to be about talking. have to be about sharing yourself with people. And once the focus is on changing our heart, changing our heart, because once they leave, no matter where they go, if I can affect them or put stuff in there that will change their heart, it will last Yes. a long time. It will last them. Changing the heart will last. Giving you a skill, that's not what I'm hired here for. I'm not hired here so you will learn a better pottery or you will become a, a, you know, a, 
a good scientist. No, like that's, I don't feel that's my mission. The schools and stuff for that. My mission is to affect the heart. God uses me and he will affect the heart. Let me say it right. That is my goal is to ask God, Lord, use me to help affect this person's heart. So in my mind, I think that. So everything that I say or try to do, I try to make it to be about changing someone from inside. Oh my gosh. Well, that is so beautiful. Do you get to tell your story very often or is this like one of the first times you're telling your story? Are you, because I think this is so powerful. The, just the experiences that you've had, but the way that God's protected you. And what I think is so fascinating is that he pulled you out of the situation. Like he gave you a place to go where you could see the life that he had planned for you. You could get a glimpse. Yes, it is. I sit back and I try and tell and show kids, but I wish, because I, when I was going through this stuff, I couldn't see it. Yes. I couldn't see what God was doing. I was frustrated and angry for a lot, a lot of years. I just yes. couldn't see it. But now I could look at other kids and teens and stuff, and I could see God working in them. Yeah. But even back then, if someone was to tell me this stuff, I wouldn't believe it neither. So I don't try to right. force it on kids. My thing is, all I want them to do right now, I want them to hear something. Because it go back to this notion of, you know, how do you develop faith? By hearing the good word, by hearing. So I was always talking to them about love and love and put it in different ways. But I was like, you know what, they will know. So when they're in a, in a position and they have to make a choice, hopefully this is where they will go back from. You know what, I'm that guy that you sinners are always telling me about being nice to people or doing like, so that is where my notion of stuff is going. You have to always be around the heart and changing the heart, but it is, I can see it now. I see what God was doing. I, I, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. Right. It is. It was, I don't go to Brooklyn no more because I have a certain fear. Like my, me and my wife, we, uh, we just celebrated our 15-year anniversary. Yay. We were in New York City a couple years ago. Yeah. And But I was just afraid to still go sure. back where I live in Brooklyn. I have this thing. There's a fear in me that I feel, and I can't let it, I don't know how to let it go. There's a fear because of all of the stuff that happened there. I feel like I will have a very violent death. Although I come out here and everything is so peaceful and all this stuff. I'm so hypersensitive about doors locking, cars locking. Yeah. I, I am very, very hypersensitive about protection and where I go and who's around me. And, and, and this, this community that I live in is not of that, but I right. couldn't, I, it's been years. It's been over 10 years and I still can't drop that or let that stuff go. So there's certain, like I said, there's certain fears that is still, yeah. There that still plagues even now. So. Well, and I want to ask you, do you, did you reconcile with your parents and your family? We I did. My parents live in, in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um it is it is still 
complicated. My kids go up there and we, uh, you know, my kids uh, talk, go and we spend time with them and stuff. But it, it never got back to where it used to be. Right. Um, me and my mate, I have just uh, a tough time yeah. with my dad because my, my dad, growing up with my dad from 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 a time I could knew, I don't know whether it was like six or seven my dad have always, my dad all the way through my life had three houses. I have about 17 brothers and sisters. My dad had three houses, three different women. Oh. All through the life that we grew up. And two years ago, my dad introduced me to someone. The guy was 35 and told me this is my brother. So... So was there that, was, you didn't some, know that was going on when it was going on, though, when you were growing up? You didn't have any idea? No, we knew it all oh, through. okay. All through home. It, it was, it, but it, if you live, when you live in Guyana, there's a certain, um, it wasn't something you, as a kid, you can't talk about it. You know it. You hear him and my mom argue about it. Yeah. And those type of things when we came here to the United States. Uh, we see it and we hear it. And still, you're still kids respecting. You can't talk or say about it, but it affects you a lot. You feel it. Yeah. When someone has to support three different houses, each house feel it because there's not enough to go around to help supporting right. different stuff. And they're not a, a home a lot. They're like the discipline and the guidance and those types of stuff that we were accustomed to in Guyana. Once you never really got it here, so. I I have have nothing to do with, with with being violent. I have a lot of pent up animosity towards my dad for things that he's done and he didn't do. Yeah. But this is what I would say. And I was saying this to my wife a couple of months ago. The things that God asked them to do, they did. And for that, I forgive them. Yeah. They always make sure that I knew about Christ. Yep. My grandparents always make sure me I knew about Christ. And that is the only thing that saved me. It wasn't them. It wasn't yep. what they do. When I was in, when, it, when things were tough, I didn't call out and say, Mom, help me. I didn't say that. I said, Lord, help me. Yep. And he helped me. And that, I was always look back and say, as parents, that's what God asked them. They were my first parents, my first teachers. And they did the most important stuff is making sure that I knew Christ. Yeah. So because of that, I forgive them. But if if this will sound right, forgiving someone doesn't mean to me doesn't mean that you don't feel the pain and those type of stuff. That's right. That was afflicted. So I still. So that's what I'm saying. I still feel those things. I still have to get to the point where I don't allow it to bother me anymore. So that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Me and my dad have a, a a weird relationship. But on the flip side of that. My dad helped me the most to be the dad that I am right now to my kids. Yeah. Because when I struggle or when I look at stuff, I just have to look at my father and see the things that he did. And I got to do the opposite. And then I will be fine. In fact, if I do all the opposite that what he did, my kids will say I was the best dad ever. Yeah. And that's what I looked at it. So, I, I tell a lot of people that be grateful for the, yeah, the experience that you go through. It's going to be tough and it's going to be hard. But like the Bible says, 
God wastes nothing. So That's every right. experience, if you just say, Lord, this is so tough. This is so hard. Help me to see what you want me to see through this. How can you turn this and make this good for me? Let me see that. And simply because of my age now and knowing more of the Bible, it's allowing me to ask those questions in tough and difficult moments. And God is opening up my eyes to see it. So I'm taking lessons. And those are even things I'm trying to help with my kids. Yeah. And anyone else that I influence them is to show them through the toughest and the hardest things you learn the most. Don't yes. shut it down. Don't block yourself out. Those types of stuff. That's where most of the growth is. So, you know, and the things those were that was the hardest for me, that's what helped me the most. That's what changed me the most. I'm grateful for that. I'm just not grateful for the pain and the stuff that it caused. Right. But it made me who I am today. Yes. My kids, I love love my kids my kids love me we are just a bunch of knuckleheads that laugh (laughs) and have fun my i I love my wife it it is i i couldn't imagine me having this type of relationship with my kids and my wife off of how i grew up yeah and i i'm always so open with my daughter is 14 and i and she comes home very often and like uh like Three or four weeks ago, she came home. It's very sad, and one of her best friend is getting parents is getting divorced. Yeah. But within the last year or so, probably about four or five of her close friends, parents are getting divorced. Wow! So then she she would turn to us and ask, and I said, "Babe, let me help you with this." I said, "Listen, you are going to see me and your mom. Whether we're going to be sometimes you might argue about finance, or we might argue about how disciplined you guys are. Those." any type of stuff. I said, I am here to stay. I said, let me tell you. And I said, this is in line with what the Bible said too. I said, there's only one way that I will ever leave your wife, your mom. And I said, is if she go out and cheat on me because it will tell me that she doesn't love me anymore. And we like, we have a conversation across the table. I said, would you, if someone doesn't love you anymore, how would that make you feel? So then we talked that out. So I said, that's all that means. If mom goes out and be with someone else, She's telling dad that she doesn't love him anymore. I said, but even then, it doesn't ever change how I love you. Right. But I was like, but I was like, here's a commitment that your mom is telling me that she won't do that. Here's a commitment that I'm giving to your mom is that I won't do that because I love her so much. And we will ask God, we will ask him to help steer us away from temptations like that. Right. But these are like true. This is everything that I'm telling you here. I had those conversations with her. That's like so beautiful. Actually, like, and talk it out. Right. And that's what the kid from camp told you in his letter when he said, I wish you were my dad. I mean, that's what people are longing for, that connection and that opportunity. Time. Time with your children, right? Like, taking the time to sit across the table from them and have those conversations. Um it's so good, and, and I love that God gave you that, that encouragement from that boy at camp, right? Because that really set the course for yep. you believing in that kind of a future for yourself. And the fact that you had the ability to make a difference um, is really, I just, I love your story. Unfortunately, we have to probably wrap it up, but I just, it's so beautiful and I, I can't wait to see just kind of how God continues to use you. I just feel like, um, what it showed me in your story was that, you know, it wasn't like he 
found you and saved you late in life. Like he had you as a little boy, like you knew him and he brought you back home. Yep. Yep. I just never love that. ever abandoned me. And I just needed to know that. So yeah, he was always there, always there. Awesome. Can I just pray for us before we hang up and then um, I'll let you go? Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, Father, thank you for Greg and thank you for his story. Thank you for his willingness to share. Thank you for um, the way that you can put all things together for good. God, we cannot do that. We don't know. We don't see your plans. We stand in the middle of um, situations and we have fear and doubt and pain and anger and all of the things that keep us... um, stuck Lord but you you reach into the darkness and you pull us out and you did that in Greg's story you reached in and you gave him a summer camp you gave him an exit you gave him an escape you gave him rest and restoration and relief and peace and and God what you did was you just called him home to himself like the the self that you created um, the person that he was born to be the person that he was you never let a ho- let go of his heart like you had a hold of him. And Lord, sometimes we do make bad decisions and sometimes we do go through seasons of our life that are painful and scary. And um, sometimes we even contemplate ending it all, Lord. But you, you love us and you hold us and you're with us. And so I just want to um, lift Greg up to you for his future and what you have planned for him, Lord. Gosh, it's with joyful expectation that we just wait and see. Um, how this is going to unfold. Um, I ask you to bless his wife, Amy, and his family and their marriage and just all of the future people that he's going to come across and lead because he's going to lead well. He's already doing that, Lord. And so we just thank you for strong men um, who have kind hearts, Lord. We thank you that you change us based on other people's stories. We have no doubt of that. So, Lord, I ask that this story would reach the ears that need to hear it today, Lord, that this would give hope to somebody who's maybe in the midst of the darkness, Lord, somebody who maybe has found themselves without family, without resources, and feeling so alone, Lord, that you are still with them. So, Lord, we just ask that you would use Greg's witness and his testimony here um, to meet people where they are. We trust that you will, and we love you so much. And um, we're just grateful, so, so grateful that we get to be a part of your plan, Lord. Thank you for the glimpse into your glory today. Um, We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.